I stand before you to officially launch my campaign for a second term as President of the United States. All those you've been knocked down, counted out, left behind, this is your campaign. Welcome to the Swing 2020. In the most uncertain year in modern history, the only predictable thing about American politics is the unpredictable. This election is no horse race. Crisis management is on the ballot. It's the incumbent Donald Trump and Vice President Joe Biden vying for the White House. But this isn't just a vote for Commander-in-Chief. It's state houses, rural congressional districts, powerful governor's mansions, and bellwether Senate seats. It's prosecutors, sheriffs, and superintendents. And the results will reveal the pulse of the American people. The swing, searching for the heartbeat of a nation, is counting us down to November 3rd. Here are your hosts, Chris Baccia and Emmanuel Berbari. Hello and welcome to the Swing 2020 as we count down the days until Election Day 2020. That day is November 3rd. We are three weeks from that pivotal date. I'm Chris Boccia with Emmanuel Barbari, breaking down all the developments in the race. And the last time we spoke, we've had a bit of a hiatus, but we spoke of a Supreme Court opening after the death of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg at the moment as we talk Um, Her potential successor, Amy Coney Barrett, is sitting in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee being questioned on her qualifications and a lot of the politics attached to a nomination only 21 days from the election. And that's where we are today. Tomorrow will be 20 days. Um, So, so close to an election. Supreme Court uh, seat on the line, the politics and all of it. You have a president who's just recovered from the coronavirus, which is the pandemic that has ravaged the nation and that Democrats accuse him of being negligent to its spread. He was diagnosed. He's now recovered. We passed a presidential debate, a vice presidential debate. Emmanuel, where do we begin here? Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll give you I'll give you the uh, ability to, but at least Barrett is, is sitting in front of the Judiciary Committee and everything is just spilling over um, in the political world in the next 20 days. Chris, it's funny because it all kind of ties together because you have the Amy Coney Barrett hearings. We were just coming off an episode where we reflected on the life, the legacy of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. There was an immediate nomination. Now the hearings are happening. There was questions as to whether the hearings would happen because in addition to President Trump, members of the Senate tested positive for the coronavirus as well. So a lot of this tying together, a second presidential debate was canceled. It was axed because of the president having coronavirus and not wanting to stoop to a virtual debate. So that's gone. Probably only the October 22nd debate remains. And Chris, we'll get into this more, an absolute catastrophe and dumpster fire of a first presidential debate that probably didn't change one person's vote. (laughs) I think that's the key point at the end there. Um, And we could start there with the debate because it frames the issues of the campaign in the sense that it doesn't feel like an issues-based campaign. Because if you watch that debate, you walked out without gaining any intelligence about where the two American political parties stand on the issues. Um, But you got a very good idea about the two men who are running for president. Um, You know, I don't know if anyone walked away from that debate proud of the state of American politics, because 
it was, as you called it, a dumpster fire. It was just, uh, it was like, uh, it was a schoolyard sort of uh, melee, but verbally and, and, you know, to a couple of points. I think the first, the president refuses to condemn white supremacy. Right. This is something that is so extraordinary. um, uh, So, uh, uh, you know, unprecedented and and shocking. Um, But also, if you've been following politics in the last five years, not shocking, if you understand um, Donald Trump and and his political strategy. The second thing is the vote, which was a a key segment as a part of Chris Wallace's uh, debate. Um, The president would not commit to the peaceful transfer of power that has been a hallmark of American democracy. And let me let me ask this question, because while it's very clear that the president will not embrace election results if they don't name him president, I, I think that's that's obvious by his own statements. Will the Republican Party try to go forward with a peaceful transfer of power? I'm, because they have um, appeased all of Donald Trump's affronts to democracy and, and all of the things where he's been extraordinary. But here's one thing that I certainly hope, but I do believe, I would posit here, that Republicans would finally take a stand against the president in the most sacred of American institutions, and that is an election and a transfer of power. At that point, it seems to me by the comments on the record that Mitch McConnell would be someone who would finally say, no, 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 Mr. President, you did not win the election. I I don't know if you're with me on that, Emmanuel. I am with you because we've seen a lot of hesitancy since some of those comments, both at the debate and then afterwards at a White House press briefing where Republicans have responded in kind and said, we are going to commit a peaceful transfer of power. And of course, the caveat here is, should President Trump lose the election because there still are votes to be cast and an election to be had. But based on those comments, I would say it's pretty fair to say. The only uh, retraction I would have from, from that statement would be, We said that about a lot of things with President Trump and the Republican Party, and it seems the further you're pushed more towards something you've never thought you would do and something that is so unfathomable, the closer and closer you creep to it without even noticing, the more likely you are to go ahead with it. So I would be very interested to see those 24 to 48 hours after November 3rd, what kind of statements are being made. Who's going along with what President Trump is saying, win or lose? Because that's going to be very telling as to whether this is the status quo and the Republican Party goes along with their president as they have for the last four years, or whether should President Trump be defeated at the ballot box, they accept that outcome and preserve American democracy over the rule of one person. Yeah, and and, and my thought here is that Whereas the Republican Party has aligned itself with this president almost by political necessity. I mean, it would be hard to win a midterm election in 2018 as a Republican if you didn't run on the president's coattails in 2016, for that matter, as well. Um, The same seems to be the calculus for 2020. And you can't blame that um, on members of a party where the president is approved of uh, roughly 90% um, of Republicans approving of the president's job um, and pretty consistently so. So these are politicians who have had to run by the president's side, but on an election um, is where I think an exception is made and, and frankly needs to be made. 
the other thing is the Supreme Court, which is an area where uh, politically Republicans have played hardball. Um, there's no question about it. They did it in 2016 when they refused to take up the nomination of Merrick Garland, um, an appeals court judge for the Supreme Court vacancy left open by Antonin Scalia. Now, on the other hand, Scalia's total ideological opposite, but also his friend, but not a certainly not an ally on the court, Ruth Bader Ginsburg passes away far closer to the election, her seat opens up and the Republicans are going to rush through a nominee. Senator Graham, the chairman of the Judiciary Committee this morning indicated that they would hold up a vote in a week, that October 23rd, 10 days from now, um, after going through the hearing process. Democrats, Emanuel, are going to make the Barrett nomination about a couple of issues. I think, first of all, the Affordable Care Act. There is going to be um, a, a, a case heard in front of the high court just after election day, potentially with Barrett on the court, um, that could strike down Obamacare. Um, and Obamacare is something that Democrats pull very well on. It's something that at this point is pretty secure and something that is a big part of the Obama legacy, a big part of the Democrat legacy. So they're going to frame Obamacare as the thing that a Barrett nomination takes down. Of course, Roe versus Wade is the other issue. But how, how this Supreme Court nomination plays into everything, to me, remains unclear because I think there's a lot more that will still unfold. They're hammering home the Affordable Care Act. You're seeing it at the hearings. The Democrats know right now they're fighting a losing battle in terms of the nomination. They don't have the votes. Right. In all likelihood, whether it's before or after the election, Amy Coney Barrett will be confirmed to the Supreme Court. But they want power. There's an election coming up. And the more they play to an issue that is so favorable to them, I think the better it helps them at the ballot box. Bouncing off that with the Supreme Court, we saw it at both the presidential debate, which provided very little clarity on policy, and the vice presidential debate, which actually provided pretty good substantive discussion. Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, the Democratic Party being very unclear and tiptoeing the issue of packing the court, not denouncing it. And the message has been essentially the voters shouldn't know until we're elected. That will become the story. We don't want to play into President Trump's hand. All those things that are the furthest thing from a denouncement. So I'm interested to see over the next three, four weeks, whether this proves to be more of a political bluff as part of the Amy Coney Barrett proceedings or whether there's something the Democratic Party really intends to do. Because there have been a lot of issues where Joe Biden has completely run to the center of the party on. But this seems to be one where he continues to throw a bone to the left wing of the party, not denouncing it, not confirming it, but leaving the door open, which seems to be appalling to a, to a vast portion of the electorate. It's, it's certainly surprising. And it seems like an area where he could, you know, sort of take the high road and say, no, we're, we won't play these dirty politics. But there's a question that Democrats are going to have to ask themselves if they take over the American government um, in 2021, which is, do we take the high road? Should we take the high road? If, if GOP politics hasn't done that, um, how, how are we expected to govern with this higher standard um, you want to get things done. For instance, I, I think a Biden administration may well approve of getting rid of the filibuster and just saying these norms. The, 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 the problem is Senate norms 
are not codified by law. There's no such thing that says you can't nominate a Supreme Court justice when the White House and the Senate are divided. These are rules that Republicans just invented over the last they're, four years. They're weird precedents. And that's why I'm very fascinated to see whether this is bluff, whether this is a political ploy to either win an election or disrupt this nomination, or whether these are tactics that are actually going to be deployed. Because again, we're talking precedents here. If these laws, these longstanding traditions, these constitutional norms are changed, the Republicans will be in power at some point again, too, if the Democrats take control of all three chambers this right. fall. And you better bet that they will use it to their political advantage with the rules that the Democratic Party sets. So they know that. These are very smart political minds. I am curious if they take control, whether these are things they would even entertain or whether they're doing it in three weeks leading up to an election to kind of throw the Republicans off their kilter a little bit. Well, and I, and I think a, a large complaint from Democrats and maybe from anyone who observes politics is that Democrats just, they, you know, they show up to a gunfight with boxing gloves and, and they're just, they, they just don't project the strength, um, you know, and sort of the authority type of uh, politics that really work in Republican politics led by someone like Donald Trump, who is sort of the champion of chest thumping. Democrats don't do that. Right. And, and, and they, and they, and what did Michelle Obama say? When they go low, we go high. Right. It, it, th maybe that, maybe that's not sticking anymore. Um, you know, it sort of worries me because if you have both parties who traffic in that sort of strategy, then you have a really uh, scary look of things if it isn't already scary enough. Um, but I, I think it's, it, it's possibly to them good politics to say, Hold on a minute. Everyone in the nation recognizes how, how, let's say, extraordinary it is that Republicans did what they did with Antonin Scalia's seat and then what they did with RBG's seat. And, you know, perhaps the, the idea here is, well, we can do that too. We can play at that game too. It's an important point because in many ways, the Democratic Party does show up to the gunfight with a gun because they've been firing bullets at President Trump for four years, even the second he got elected. But that concern of the Democratic voter is what you're alluding, alluding to, right. Chris. When right. it matters, they show up with boxing gloves. When they have a chance to throw that final punch, it seems they run away from the fight. And <laughs> the same could be said about when President Trump contracted COVID and the Biden campaign is pulling negative ads off the air. Like they take that high road and they think that is electable and that is more desirable. That wasn't the case in 2016. So the casual Democratic voter would be like, no, play their game. Go even harder. Go even a step further. We're not going to think differently about you because of it. You're still earning our vote. So I think that's an important discussion to be had about where the push and pull kind of reaches that new level. But it's a moot point now because part of our discussion is President Trump has recovered from COVID-19. He's back on the campaign trail, will be for every day of these final three weeks, by the way. He has scheduled events in virtually every important state. And the Biden negative ads are back on the air. So moot point in a lot of ways at this point. <laughs> yeah, but, but definitely an interesting point that the negative ads came off the airwaves. Um, President Trump did not pull negative 
campaign ads while nope. he was in the hospital. And he certainly didn't when um, Hillary Clinton came down with pneumonia in the 2016 campaign. Nonetheless, this story, you know, the, the politics that will naturally surround something like the president getting sick. And for a moment there, I was thinking about presidential succession. I think everybody was. It, it, it was seriously that level um, of, of fear. But regardless, the American voters will decide the fate of the president um, since he has recovered from COVID-19 and he is back um, in action holding uh, full, full rallies uh, without social distancing. But it's also in the political character of Joe Biden to pull negative campaign ads. He, he is old school. He is classic. And this is sort of the norms that a Joe Biden who's been around forever, you know, I could almost see him making that call. We are going to take the high road. I mean, he's premising his campaign on character. We talked a lot about that around the conventions. It's clearly the way they're trying to frame it. Because when you look at him on the issues, and this is where we could go back to the debate, um, there's no doubt that the former vice president is has a weak grasp on the issues on even if it's climate change, um, racial justice, things that will motivate a, a especially the younger base of the Democratic Party, but will absolutely drive liberals to the polls. Um, he's not somebody who appears to be in step with the party. I mean, he's he's got the talking points. He understands it. He, he you know, he's been talking about them for a long time now. But, and this goes back to the primary campaign, never been the Democrat who can assert the strongest strategy for some of these issues that will clearly be driving liberals to the polls this year. And he's a master of studying those points and driving them home in a calm atmosphere that would be a debate. I, I, I kind of steer away from that because this debate was not calm, but <laughs> calm rehearsed way where he can deliver them and certainly dispelling any any rumors or, or theories that he's struggling cognitively. He had a steady debate performance in that regard. He knew how to deliver his points. But you're right, Chris. It, it seems they've abandoned the idea that they're going to reach out to uh, the left wing of the party and try to drive up that enthusiasm by speaking to their issues. They're not trying to speak as much to younger voters. So it kind of does leave Joe Biden in a vulnerable position if this race were to ever tighten he's relying heavily on his support with seniors that he's cut into president trump's margin drastically with with suburban women and people of the like that he cuts into those margins he doesn't have to rely on on massive voter turnout from young demographics or or the far left of the party any other votes like that or gravy he will thrive on it he will certainly take it but the campaign for a while has done extremely well with groups that President Trump won by wide margins, and they've narrowed that gap significantly in the polls, that I don't think he's all that concerned about speaking uh, to the far left of the party, speaking to young voters, supporting Medicare for all, the Green New Deal, all of those issues. He will gladly denounce those as long as his numbers stay the same with those groups that matter. Yeah, and, and let's even recall fracking, which is something that right. he, he said, and, and it, it clearly seems to be aimed at Midwestern voters that he needs in his column um, as Biden-Harris really tried to reassemble what was an Obama coalition that was able to win some of those Midwestern states, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, 
or not some of them, all of them both times, um, you know, and, and, and we could even hit on the vice presidential debate, which was sort of a story where both candidates, the number two on each ticket, better articulated than the number one, um, sort of the party's platforms. Um, and, you know, even Senator Harris, Kamala Harris, was very assertive that Joe Biden will not ban hydraulic fracturing. It's not um, a part of this Biden-Harris administration. But in any case, you know, my takeaway from uh, the, the two candidates for vice president was that neither necessarily changed the winds of this race, which is typical for a VP debate. But there was a lot more at stake when you had a president who was sick um, and you have, you know, a 78-year-old Democratic nominee. Um, so both of these people are, are very important. There's no question about that. But I don't know that they changed the calculus much. I, I think Pence always has a way of making Trump's policies and rhetoric sound more palatable to certain moderate voters. And you could maybe say the same about Kamala Harris. I think the vice president did a very effective job of that. He he does make those issues sound much more palatable. He he presents himself as very presidential, presentable. And that's a very fair take, Chris. I don't think either of these debates moved the needle much in terms of who people were going to vote for. Does it drive up enthusiasm? Maybe. Maybe it disengages some people because I'm not sure if you're a young voter watching that debate, whether you're running through a wall to go to the polls and wait in line for half an hour, an hour, three hours to, to cast your ballot either before or on November 3rd. Since the debate, though, the polls have been favorable to, to Vice President Biden. He almost won it by default. He didn't do anything special, like we were saying. He didn't speak on the right. issues extremely well. But President Trump's tone and his not letting Biden get a word in edgewise type strategy didn't show up well for him in the polls because he was trailing by about six, seven points in the real clear politics average before the debate. That's way up to plus 10 for Joe Biden since the debate. And those are June racial unrest type numbers for, for Joe Biden that really put him as the clear front runner in this race. And the numbers are holding true and expanding in all the key swings as well. So Joe Biden didn't have to do a lot. And with the second debate canceled, He'll really only need to do it one more time. And unless there is a massive polling error, unlike anything we've seen, it seems it's going to be a race that's defined on how President Trump shapes his message. And so far, he shot himself on the, in the foot on too many occasions. It hasn't been Biden's strength, but it's rather been Trump's weakness. I, I'm, I'm with you on that. And I, I, I agree with you that the vice president didn't necessarily, the former vice president Biden didn't necessarily... Um, impress many of the viewers, but I, I don't know, I, you know, I, I could think of ordinary Americans watching that debate and just being, you know, uh, just a little bit taken aback by the behavior of the sitting president. It, it, it certainly wasn't presidential. There have been four years of his record to evaluate. So to compare last time to this time wouldn't be right. But also, if you look back at last time, he didn't behave that way in the 2016 debate because I went back and watched the footage of him and Hillary Clinton. And of course he was still Donald Trump, but he, he, he wasn't, this was an agenda. This was a, this was very much a strategy. There was a meeting and, and this was a disgusting, I'm just going to insert myself into everything, not let him get a word out. You're talking about someone with a stutter and it just didn't look good. It was almost, it almost produced a feeling of pity 
There was a key turning point, I think, when President Trump saw Chris Wallace interject on a few key issues early on, and he dropped the gloves. And there must have been some discussion about that type of strategy early on. And the second he saw that, and he almost said something to the effect of, I didn't know I'm debating two people, it was off to the races. And there was not one Joe Biden sentence, I think, for the rest of the debate that you didn't hear President Trump's voice lingering or, or interjecting. And that doesn't play to someone like Joe Biden. Like you said, it's not going to make Joe Biden look very well-spoken, whether he messes up or not, which he really didn't. He didn't mess up. Someone who has a stutter, someone who struggles as is to, to be the, 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 the seasoned, the ordinary, the, the eloquent politician, right. it's not going to allow him to really drive home his message. So that's what we mean by default. Joe Biden just stood there. He didn't do much. He delivered a couple of key lines, but did it change votes? Not really, because President Trump has been in his own way, and it seems every time he's had an effective line of attack on Joe Biden, he hasn't seized it, and he's gone towards the issues like Joe Biden's uh, a Trojan horse of the radical left. That resonates with no one, rather than actual attacks on his record that he did in 2016 to Hillary Clinton that would move the needle in his direction. Yeah, and, and as far as attacks, one of them came on the son of, of the vice president, Hunter Biden, who, who struggled with addiction. And, you know, I, I don't know that anybody hears that and, and is pleased by that, that sort of in-the-dirt politics. But, but then again, I've been saying that for years, so, so maybe I'm wrong to think that that doesn't resonate. But I can't imagine it does. It's just ugly, and it's, and it's not, not, nothing that anyone wants to see. At the same time... Um, as far as his behavior, you know, after coming down with this illness, being being very flippant about it, um, about the coronavirus, not only did it infect and, and then kill more than 200,000 Americans, but it infected uh, the president of the United States himself. And he is packing arenas regardless of that. I, I, you know, I, I don't know that that you know, because people we've we've adjusted our lives because of the coronavirus. And when you see this person not really being prone to adjust anything um, or to make any sacrifices, having a Rose Garden ceremony for Amy Cody Barrett that then becomes a super spreader event. Okay, he got sick, you're, you, you know, you're gonna walk a fine line between criticizing him because he ended up getting sick from probably that event. But the fact that he continues to hold large events, it, it's sort of shocking. And, you know, and I, and I don't think it helps his case at all. But you mentioned the numbers, Emmanuel, and the top line number being the six to seven that we saw earlier, six to seven point national lead, real clear politics for Biden. That's now plus 10. Like you said, there's a lot of daylight there, whereas we expected this race to tighten um, as you would have between July and now moving into October, the middle of October. But it's spread. It's, it's spread in Biden's favor. And then the final thing I'll say is just, if you look at, to me, four states that Biden's really not supposed to be up in, Florida plus two, Arizona plus two and a half, North Carolina plus two, Iowa plus one, all within the margin of error, all could easily go in Trump's favor. But those aren't even the states that Biden depends on. Those are right. states that can be supplementary or could make up for a state that he's supposed to win but doesn't. But the fact that he's got leads or at least uh, is – within the margin of error for winning these states is says a lot about the strength of the Biden campaign on October 13th. 
And when you see President Trump scheduling rallies in Georgia three weeks from an election, he's a Republican incumbent. President Trump has acknowledged that he is in a vulnerable situation here. He can shout that the polls aren't in his favor and they are fixed and they're, they're determined to suppress his vote. Whatever those claims may be, his message on his Twitter about seniors, hey, I'm a senior, did you know I'm a senior? And touting his accomplishments towards the seniors of this country shows that he knows he's in trouble with seniors. Going to Georgia where the early vote, the first day of early voting was a 41% turnout increase over 2016. And then he schedules a rally there. Goes to show you these are states that shouldn't be in play at this point, that are, and the national deficit is clearly glaring to an extent where he's forced to go to these areas. President Trump will also be in Iowa at some point next week. Ohio has been running close in the polling, even though that's a state Trump carried by eight points in 2016. And the three Midwestern states that delivered him the presidency, Pennsylvania plus seven, Wisconsin plus six, Michigan plus seven, with a few outliers, so you can make the case they are a little bit closer than that. But still, that's a lot of margin of error to work with for Biden, where he's still at his win number. So yes, it is a Biden upper hand at this point. And we've been saying that for a couple of months, and you expect the race to tighten, but it's been remarkably steady. And with 11 million votes already cast nationwide, time's ticking. Uh, the clock is ticking. And that puts an emphasis on President Trump doing a second debate, having a great performance here or there, coming out in a third debate and really driving his message home in a digestible fashion. But will those things happen? Time will tell. The more votes are cast and it's record early turnout at this point, the less it plays to Trump's favor because he's the one behind at this stage of the campaign. We are only 20 days away from that pivotal date. And when it comes, we certainly anticipate some messiness. You have Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, all states that won't be counting ballots until election day or in Michigan's case, one day before. But, you know, we don't expect to have results, which is something we've been consistent about here. Like you mentioned, 11 and a half million votes already cast. Turnout numbers higher, Emmanuel. And when you look at these states that may well go uh, in Biden's direction, important to note that Florida and Arizona are two, North Carolina included, that you might get results from on election day. And if Biden can secure those uh, states, and you've seen him make frequent visits to Florida, which Trump just needs to win. And if he's able to win Florida, uh, then it's possible that we have a victor uh, declared on election night. It could be very clean or it could get messy. And those three Rust Belt states that we alluded to before where Biden has the upper hand, needs to win back, it could take several days. And it will be on the news organizations. It'll be on those local precincts to report in a responsible and very easy way that's palatable to the American viewer on election night because they're used to having the results. They're used to, to projecting a president, at least by early morning, November 4th in this case. So President Trump has no path that doesn't go through Florida. He, he needs a state. If Joe Biden wins Florida on election night and those results will be 98, 99% in by early morning, November 4th, President Trump has no path. So 
the importance of visiting Florida, visiting Arizona, visiting North Carolina has a heightened importance this year because, sure, you want to get to 270 at all costs, but the Biden camp knows this can be a much easier, less painstaking process for the candidate who currently has the upper hand if he wins some of the states that Trump has no path without. And it, will, it won't only be those news organizations, it'll also be political figures and how they respond to what may be uncertain or unsure election results. So we'll keep our eye on that and unpack all of the politics. You may also see a Supreme Court nomination that comes down to the wire. Perhaps there's a confirmation vote on the Senate floor, who knows, a night before, two nights before election day. It's gonna be that close. So we're gonna see, and we really don't know, Amy Coney Barrett right now, in front of the Judiciary Committee. But that's all we have for you on this edition of the podcast. This is 20 days away from Election Day 2020, less than three weeks until uh, some of those final votes are cast. For Emmanuel Barbari, I'm Chris Boccia. We thank you for joining us on this special edition of The Swing 2020.